Let's bow our heads in prayer. Holy Father, what a rich hymn we just sang of your unfailing love and the depths of it will never be fathomed in our minds and hearts and we will study it in the riches of who you are throughout all of eternity. We thank you for your great love that has been demonstrated not only through the cross but poured out by the Holy Spirit in us. And we thank you that your spirit is our teacher ultimately, that he raises up gifted men and women to break down the scriptures, but ultimately you said we have no need of a teacher, that he is the anointing, he is the one who ultimately instructs us. So as we open your word tonight, open our hearts up, we know that truth is often held, withheld from the wise and intelligent, and Jesus said he did reveal it to babes, to children. So we come as children, teachable, humble, asking you to help us tonight. May our lives be changed by the exposure that we have to your truth, and I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are in a course on God's finances. What does God say about finances? Finances, God's way, and we've just completed section one, and if you were not here for that, they are posted online at communitybiblechurch.us, and when the whole course is finished, they'll be at Search the Scriptures so that you can listen to them if you want to. Uh, now, there are some fill-ins, and I apologize for that, but many people take this through our Institute for Biblical Studies for credit, and two, for those who want a financial counselor, and they don't do it in any charge, they do it as a ministry to people who are in need, uh, they have to have completed the course. If they don't have the confidence that you've walked through the course and filled in every blank, then you're wasting their time and uh, you want to be prepared for that, all right? So principle number two this evening, we begin the Christian as a giver. Now, we have several objectives for tonight. By the end of this session, we hope to be able to properly define tithing from the Bible and to answer it uh, biblically for today. And let me just say, um, this is going to take us maybe two, possibly three weeks to get through. So my goal is not to rush it, but for you to understand it. And so we're going to think about tithing and answer, is it biblical for today? We're going to say that some people say it's not, that tithing was just something under the Old Testament law. It's antiquated. It's something the Jew does, but not something the Christian does. We're going to speak a little bit about what it means to give in secret. What does it mean? What does it not mean? We'll talk about who should give, the results of giving, and how much to give. We will talk about how do I establish a biblical plan for giving? Uh, how do I understand the priority of giving? And there's some fine nuanced differences there. And then we'll discern some of the fallacies of what we uh, commonly refer to today as prosperity theology. Okay, by way of introduction, each year a report comes out, Giving USA, and I've got the 2018 stats up here, which is the most recent. Uh, statistical data available. It's called the Annual Report on Philanthropy. Here we go. Uh, and it documents how much Americans give and to whom. It's interesting, in 1935, when the first year they began to track it, this particular uh, philanthropic group, uh, they determined that about $7.7 billion was given annually uh, by Americans. In 2018, 
It's up from the year before, uh, $410.02 billion were given to nonprofits and charitable trusts. Well, who gave? What are the sources? Uh, Well, individuals gave about $286 billion. That makes 70%. Uh, Bequests totaled about $35 billion, 8.7%. Foundations gave about $66 billion, 16.3%. Corporations contributed $20 billion plus, about 5%. What does it break down to between the rich and the poor? Let's talk about the percentages given by the rich and the poor. Those with annual incomes of less than $30,000 on average donated 2.8%. Those in the middle income range donated approximately 1.7%. And those with annual incomes of more than $100,000 donated 2.1%. It's kind of interesting to me because the differences are not that dramatic. And, what, and by the way, I've read this report year after year for maybe 25 years now, and the percentages change very little in those three categories. Uh, people often, when they have more money, they just elevate their lifestyle, and um, they don't always uh, express greater generosity. Where did it go? Well, religious organizations would be the first. They gave 46.2%. That would be churches synagogues, uh, Christian schools, uh, Christian seminaries, uh, mission agencies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Human services, which is an interesting definition in of itself, about 9.1%. Educational institutions, 9.4%. Social welfare, about 10%. Arts and humanities, uh, that was 6.5%. Civic and public institutions, 1.9%. And other areas, multiplicity of different things, about 15, nearly 16%. Now, as we evaluate our giving, it should reflect to whom we have given our affection. Where you give really is an expression of where your heart is, where your affections are. Jesus taught that. The real question is not what you would do if you had a million dollars, but what are you doing with the $20 in your pocket? Oh, if I only had a million dollars, I would do such and such. Not usually true. So we're hoping to establish, among other things, a biblical theology for giving. You have a theology of money. Everyone in this room does. The question is, is it a biblical theology? Is it reflective of what God has revealed in His Word? And so part of our growing as Christians is we are continually having our minds renewed. We find out what God says on every subject, and He gives it to us as we need it, and as we're open and humble and teachable and under the authority of His Word. And He broadens that knowledge with years, and uh, not just with years of time, but with years of obedience and depending on the Spirit. So the first act of giving in the Bible was done by God. The first act was done by God. And unless you have a theology of giving, then your giving typically will not last. It will just be, well, I guess I'm doing it because everyone else does, or the church says I should. But you need to understand why God asked us to give. And the first act of giving ever done in the Bible, of course, was by God. The fact that God has given us life is at the heart of any theology of giving. In the beginning, God created man and gave him life. Is that not what Paul says on Mars Hill in Acts 17? In him we move and live and we have our being. Without God, we're we're nothing. And of course, the more we divest that truth from the culture, we think we're the big shot. Oh, God doesn't have anything to do with it. There's a growing number of atheists now across our land, at least confessed atheists and agnostics. 
and many, many more Americans who just no longer acknowledge God as the author of life. Genesis says, of course, then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so that distinguishes us, of course, from the animal world. Uh, You never see cats or dogs on their knees in prayer. Only people have the capacity to worship God, to know God, to want to find out what God says. Not only is God the giver of physical life, but the Bible teaches he is the giver of spiritual life. Paul, of course, one of the most quoted verses in the Bible, many of you have it memorized, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We owe God everything because without him we are nothing. And yet so many give God so very little of either their time, talent, or treasure. And so a biblical view of God places God at the center of life. He's the center of all that we are and all we do and how we are supposed to think. Versus a humanistic worldview places man at the center of life. And of course, that's the growing worldview in our nation today. The Bible teaches we owe it all to God, while the world teaches we owe nothing to God, and we deserve it all. That's Romans 1 lived out. They have worshiped the creation rather than the creator God. They refused to acknowledge God and give him thanks and praise. So God gave them over. All that we do should be done in a spirit of gratitude for all that God has done for us. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, one of those verses, one of the top 100 verses Christians should have memorized. I just gave you two that every Christian should know. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, that you give thanks in all things. It is really practicing the principle of loving God. Why? Because he first loved us. John says, we love God because he first loved us. What does it mean to love God? Is it some emotional feeling? Emotions can be involved, but it's far more than that. We love God because he first loved us, and this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, John will write. It's obedience to his commandments. We can say we love God, but if we don't obey God in his revealed will and his word, we're really not loving God. And then John goes on to add to say his commandments are not burdensome. When you really understand your position in Christ and who God is and that his commandments express the very, very best for us, then they're not burdensome. So God, all giving really starts with God. The first act of giving in the Bible is done by God. Here's point B is man's first recorded gift to God. Let's talk about man's first recorded gift to God. Cain's offering was rejected by God, and Abel's offering was accepted by God. One was rejected, the other was accepted. Now, I've printed as much of the Scripture in the handout that I could so that we could save a little bit of time. You don't have to look up every verse, but they'll be here for your study. Let me read Genesis 4, 1 through 5. Follow along. Now, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And you'll notice the Lord there. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You'll sometimes see it spelled capital L, small letter O-R-D. 
Those are two different words for God. And if you're not sure about the way those are spelled, if you have the New American Standard, and other Bibles do it, but the NASB does in the foreword, how they distinguish the different Hebrew words. So capital L, small letter O-R-D is Adonai, and all caps is Yahweh, the covenant name for God. It's the most sacred name for God in all the Bible. I have gotten a man-child, and she recognized with the help of the Lord. Um, that is something we don't recognize today. Uh, many times I've had couples in my office and have asked for prayer. They said, you know, we really want to have a child, but we just don't seem to be able to. And I said, well, how long have you been married? And have you, you know always wanted these children from day one. No, we've just decided in the last year and we seem to be unable to get pregnant. And then sometimes I'll have people even tell me, oh yeah, we're going to have a baby. We're going to have a baby in March of 2023. Oh, really? And we don't acknowledge that God is the one who opens the womb. And man, since the early 60s, 1960s, his birth control came into the United States, we are sovereign over the womb, we so think. But Eve recognized, Eve, whose name means the mother of the living, uh, that God gave her this baby. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel and his part also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now there's two dimensions to Abel's gift that pleased God. Two dimensions to it. And this, by the way, is fundamental to all that we're going to learn about giving today. Two dimensions. First, he gave in faith according to the revealed will of God. He understood what God had revealed, and it was on that basis that he gave, and that's what God calls us to do. We are to find out what he has revealed, and we give on that basis. Hebrews 11 verse 4 says that Abel's sacrificial gift was more excellent, not that Abel himself was more excellent. Let me read Hebrews 11 4 by faith. And faith, of course, is basically the revealed will of God, what God has said. And when we choose to believe what God has said, then we are exercising faith. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Now, and since Abel, in notes here I wrote, brought his gift by faith, as in every age, by hearing God's word, that's where faith comes from. He, he came by faith, uh, and faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. There must have been prior revelation from God for Abel to have faith. Now, who had written any Bible verses up till this time? No one. The first verse of Scripture had not yet been penned. But if God repeatedly, and in many fashions and in many ways, states the principle that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God, then God had to have revealed His Word to him in some fashion and in some way. 
And of course, before the scripture was codified, the writer of the Hebrews tells us in many portions and in many ways, God revealed his truth. God established, uh, so there must have been prior revelation uh, for, from God for Abel to have faith. God established in Genesis 3.21 the need for a blood sacrifice when he made coverings for Adam and Eve. Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothe them. So if you remember, they tried to cover their shame with their own fig leaves. They felt the guilt of sin. They all of a sudden knew that they were naked. They didn't know. They were unaware that they were naked before. I take it that they probably had a robe of light as described in Psalm 8 of the living God. But when the lights went out, so to speak, when sin entered into the world, they sensed a great sense of shame. So they tried to cover the shame with clothing. And of course, God was displeased with that. God made garments of skin. The first death in all the universe took place at the hand of God. He killed a number of animals to create garments, plural, to cover both Adam and Eve. And he was establishing a principle that the life is in the blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And that's going to run through Genesis and Exodus and all the way through the entire Old Testament. The phrase found here, in the course of time, which literally reads in Hebrew, at the end of days, it's a Hebrew idiom indicating at the end of the week, namely the Sabbath, um, indicating some type of prior revelation. So it's not like they just hmm, picked a day. In the end of days, in the course of time, Hebrew people use that same idiom today to describe the Sabbath, the seventh day. That was the day that God dictated for his people to worship on. He had not yet codified it in the law any more than he had codified tithing in the law. But God was still giving revelation to his people, a prior revelation. Christ affirmed Abel's righteousness when he referred to him as the first of all the prophets. Do you remember in Luke 11, he's in this encounter with uh, a lot of religious Jewish men who refused to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and all they want to do is go against him. And Jesus reveals something about Abel that you do not find in the Old Testament. Listen to what he said from Luke's gospel. It's also contained in Matthew. For this reason also, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from since the foundation of the world may be charged against that, this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, Abel being the first prophet, Zechariah being the last, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. So that's important because Jesus identifies, we know Zechariah obviously was a prophet. We didn't know that of Abel. But Jesus reveals that the first prophet, from the first to the last, they're held guilty. Why? Because from the first to the last prophet, God had revealed the biblical truths about the Messiah, even in Abel's sacrifice and how he did it. In addition, the apostle Peter tells us that all the prophets, which of course would include Abel since Jesus identifies him as one, Peter tells us that all the prophets bear witness of the Messiah, indicating God was pleased with the kind of offering that Abel brought. He was pleased with the kind of offering that Abel brought. 
Let me read from Acts 10. You remember the occasion. Um, Peter is given the keys to the kingdom. Keys are used to open things. And Peter is the first one ever to share the gospel with Jewish people. And Peter is the first one to open the doors to the Gentile world. And of course, he goes to Cornelius in his house and in the province of God, he brings these two groups together and he hears the gospel and believes. And Peter is recounting some important truth here. Follow along Hebrews 10. I mean, Acts 10, 42 and 43. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, speaking of Jesus, who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and of the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. So what does that tell me? It tells me that every single prophet, according to the fact that Abel is a prophet, and according to the fact that Peter says all the prophets bore witness of the Messiah. Now, sometimes we think that these Old Testament people were just big dummies. And certainly, we have a lot more revelation than they do. And we can read with uh, the Old Testament from the New Testament perspective. But they knew a lot more than we give them credit for knowing. And even the first prophet, Abel, he preached Messiah. He preached Christ. He understood a principle that God had revealed. The first gospel given in all the Bibles in Genesis 3.15. In Latin, we call it the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. It's found in Genesis 3.15, where God reveals in kernel form that he's going to send a savior of the world. And he had already established the principle with Adam that without the shedding of blood, that fig leaf religion, man-made human effort religion won't work, that God has to ultimately provide a sacrifice. So second, he gave the firstlings of all his fat portions. So first, he, he gave in faith according to the revealed will of God. God had revealed a principle. But second, he gave of the firstlings of his flock in their fat portions. Abel's gift is designated firstling, while Cain's is not designated in that way, such that God is said to have no regard for Cain's offering. That's one aspect of it, and I bring out both here. Abel's gift is described as being of the fat portions, a Hebrew idiom meaning the best. Cain's gift is not described in the same manner. In Hebrews 11 and verse 4, we are told that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain, which upon careful reflection goes back to both the quality, as seen in this Hebrew idiom, and the kind of sacrifice that Abel gave. If you remember, uh, Cain brought the fruit of the ground, and Abel, his brother, brought an animal. Distinctly different kinds of gifts. In Hebrews 11.4, we're told that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. Again, not just based on the quality, but the kind. Number four, Abel did not offer some sick or crippled sacrifice, as did the priests in Malachi's day. If you know Malachi, one of the things they did is they were religious, but it was sloppy religion. Yeah, they were going through all the motions, but it was half-hearted, and it was less than excellent. God doesn't like a lack of excellence. He deserves our best. He gave God the best he had, which pictured, of course, the promised Messiah. And that was one of the reasons, of course, God was so upset with the Jewish priests as they led the people. When they brought a crippled, lame animal, 
He said, why don't you give that to your governor? Would he take it? And you're bringing that to God? No, the perfect animals that they were to bring were representative of the sinless Messiah. Timeless lessons from man's first act of giving. What are some timeless lessons from man's first act of giving? The writer to the Hebrews tells us through faith, though he, namely Abel, is dead, he still speaks. He's still preaching. A sound biblical theology on giving will ask what message is found in Genesis 4 that still speaks to people today about giving? What message is there that is still speaking? Well, from the example of Abel, which God commended, we first learn that we must give not according to our own inclinations, but according to the revealed will of God. We don't give like we think we should, not according to our inclinations, but to what God's will is. What is He revealed? What is the revealed will of God? Without faith, which is based on the revealed will of God, we cannot please God. And genuine faith can only be based on the Scripture. Jude 1 speaks of the faith delivered once for all, what today we typically refer to as the Bible. Any sound theology of giving will ask, what precisely has God revealed in his word as to how I should give? Second, we must learn from Abel that God does not want our leftovers because he deserves our very best. He deserves our very best. So we come in faith and we come bringing our very best. We're commanded in Proverbs 3, verse 9, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So you don't say, you know, if I have anything left, I'll give something to God. No, you start with God. When we give to God from the first of our increase, we are walking by faith and trusting him for our ultimate provision. All right, let's go to Roman numeral two. You with me, everyone? Okay. Let's talk about God's vehicle to support the Lord's work, which is the tithe. And we want to begin by asking a question, a couple of questions at each major point here. First, does tithing involve a definite proportion? And the Bible refers, and the answer is yes, and the Bible refers to this definite proportion as the tithe. A tithe is both a mathematical term and a biblical term. And this is interesting because it's used that way in the Bible, but it's also used that way outside of the Bible. The word in Greek and Hebrew is a mathematical term. So it's both a mathematical and a biblical term. To tithe does not just mean to give, but to give 10%. It's literally what the word tithe means. It means a tenth. Very often, God's people use the term tithe very loosely to refer to any amount of money they give to God and not necessarily 10%. Well, even if you do not know the original biblical languages, by simply reading the Bible carefully, you would have to conclude a tithe meant 10%. For instance, in Genesis 14, 20, and in Hebrews 7, 4, we are told that Abraham gave a tenth of all that he had to Melchizedek. And this is referred to in Hebrews 7, 8, and 9 as a tithe. Let me read Genesis 14, 20. It's printed there. And blessed be God most high, Abraham says, 
who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. Melchizedek said, blessed be God most high. And then in response, he gave a tenth of all. Now Hebrews 7 and verse 4, observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And then let me read Hebrews 7, 8, and 9. It says, in this case, in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. So let's go to Hebrews for a second. I'm going to make you turn there because I don't want you to get kind of a segmented thought here. Let's read the passage, and then we'll kind of break it down just a little bit. Hebrews chapter 7. And let's begin reading in verse 1. Melchizedek's a very interesting person. If you're new to the Bible, find Revelation, then just scan back a little bit, and you'll be in Hebrews. Hebrews is a book that is written to Jewish Christians. Hebrews, as you might expect. And the theme of Hebrews is to deal with um, the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You had Hebrew Jewish Christians who experienced great persecution because as Jews, they were confessing Jesus as Lord. And of course, uh, some of them wanting to kind of be secret service Christians went back into the temple worship and identified with Jewish rituals and practices, and, and it made it less uh, difficult to deal with your Jewish brethren if you could be Christian on the one side and act like a Jew on the other. Of course, the writer of the Hebrews shows that those things in the Old Testament are just shadows, that the reality of Jesus, and to go back to the shadows is really not to affirm the reality of Jesus. So he's dealing here with uh, the Aaronic priesthood, which is a priesthood that God established through Moses. Remember, he had a brother named Aaron. But then he shows that there's a greater priesthood than the Aaronic priesthood. It's the Melchizedek. Melchizedek, the Melchizedekian priesthood. It's far more important. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. That's Genesis 14. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy, Melchizedek's, is not traced from them, he's a real human, he has a genealogy, but it's not traced from them, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises." So, um, and then let me just read a couple more verses. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives of them of whom it is witness that he lives on. 
And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. A lot there. But let me make a couple notes here, beginning here on point seven, page 18. For over 1,900 years of church history, the unanimous voice of the body of Christ was that the practice of tithing has always been God's standard for proportionate giving. I just say that that, that doesn't necessarily make something right. Uh, there certainly have been things that have been propagated at different times uh, in church history by a majority that were just wrong. In uh, colonial America, the majority of um, Christians were propagating a view towards the king of England that was just wrong. It was a distorted view. Now, that's a sermon in, a, in and of itself. There have been denominations um, in American history that have advocated slavery, and they tried to build a biblical case for it. So there have been things that have been said that people have used Bible verses for that aren't necessarily correct. However, when you see something where there's a continuity for a couple of thousand years, in other words, if in the 19th century people for the first time decided that Jesus was God, and up till that time they said he was only human, you might be scratching your head, well, how did people have it wrong for 1,800 years? But if there is a truth that is taught century after century after century, we would be wise to pause and ask, well, why? Were they correct in this? So was the tithe simply for the Old Testament era, or does it apply for today? Point B, does it apply for today? There are some who say that tithing was an Old Testament practice given under the law such that we need not obey it today. And you'll hear occasionally people on our own radio station who will advocate that. It is reason that while tithing is mentioned in the Gospels, it is not commanded in the epistles, such that God must have only intended for Israel to practice tithing. So that's one of the rationale points. It is true that tithing is found in two of the Gospels, Matthew 23, Luke 11, and that tithing is not directly commanded in the New Testament epistles, but neither is baptism. Baptism is nowhere commanded in any of the epistles. It's assumed, much like tithing is assumed in Hebrews 7, but it's not commanded. Spirit baptism is very often mentioned, but it's not commanded in the epistles of the New Testament. And yet, who would deny that baptism is not relevant for today? It's part of the great commission of our Lord and Savior to make disciples baptizing them. No one would deny that. Now, they may come up with a different uh, mode of baptism, but no one would deny that it's something that Christ asks his people to practice. It is true, point three, that tithing is found in the Gospels, but again, uh, not directed command in the epistles, but neither is baptism. It is interesting to think about that an import, as important as baptism is being part of the great commission of Christ, that while baptism is taught in the Gospels, it is never directly commanded by the epistles. Yet I know of no Bible-believing teacher who would say that water baptism has no application for the church today. Of course, God only has to say something once for it to be true. There's a lot of things found just once in the Bible, and no one would deny their, uh, 
their moral fortitude for the people of God today. A blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is mentioned only by Christ and never spoken again in the rest of the New Testament. Yet none would doubt the severity of this sin. It's found in all the synoptic gospels. Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. And by the way, that half of the verse we should emphasize sometimes, because sometimes people think they've committed some sin that they can't receive forgiveness of. And it's even underscored in Mark's account in Mark 3, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks blasphemy, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. It's an eternal sin. It's an unforgivable sin. It can never, ever, ever, ever be forgiven. You say, well, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? <laughs> Maybe I've committed it. Well, you hope you don't. Well, listen, if you're worried that you committed it, I promise you, you haven't. But that's like an hour-long sermon in and of itself, and you might want to take the course on pneumatology where we cover that. Nowhere in the New Testament does God give a record concerning the laws of incest, regulating who you can and cannot marry, as recorded in Leviticus chapter 18. It's not found in the New Testament. And yet I think we would all agree that God does not want you to marry your sister. Right? Mm -hmm. I think so. Um, I mean, we could give dozens of examples. God nowhere mentions bestiality in the New Testament. One Old Testament passage. But it's a wicked sin. God only has to say something, whether it's under the law, before the law, after the law. If it's part of his moral law, it's true forever, period. And sorting out the application of certain Old Testament mandates and the New Testament error, it is helpful to remember several truths. Several truths like, you know, gee whiz, should I wear a certain kind of clothing? Do I file, follow certain dietary laws? How do I cut my hair? You know, what's relevant for today and what, was, what is eternal? What's time-bound? What has forever application? None of us... Oh, well, first, the, if the Old Testament law was simply an illustration of what Christ would fulfill through the cross, then it is part of God's ceremonial law and not binding on us today. None of us bring animal sacrifices to church. Why? Because Christ made one sacrifice for sins for all time. Of course, the writer of the Hebrews underscores that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins, that they were just shadows of the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. The cleansing laws are not applicable for today. Why? Because they were symbolic of man's need for cleansing from sin fulfilled in Christ. And when you read them and read them with other New Testament passages, it becomes quite apparent. Second, God through here. So, so one is if, it, if it's a shadow, like Paul says in Colossians, of what Jesus is going to do, then it doesn't apply today. Second principle is through God, through a clear and plain statement in the New Testament, can overrule any one of his Old Testament commands. God can overrule any of his Old Testament commands. For instance, we do not observe the dietary laws of clean and unclean foods. And that's a big issue. Read Romans chapter 14. You've got a church of Jew and Gentile, and there's some uh, hostility amongst the believers over what kind of food you can eat and what you can't eat, because if you're raised Jewish, you observe the laws of 
kosher and Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14, and there were certain things you didn't eat. But God can overrule anything. And so we don't observe the dietary laws of clean and unclean foods. Why? Because God plainly declares all meats clean. Mark 7, Acts 10. Let me read the Mark 7 passage. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whoever, whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because, he does, because it does not go into his heart but into the stomach and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. So Jesus declared all foods clean. And then, of course, in Acts 10, Peter has this vision uh, in terms of the sheet that appears with all kinds of clean and unclean animals in it, and God says, eat. I can't eat. I can't eat that stuff. That, that's unclean food. That, those, are, those would violate your word in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. God said, eat. And, of course, he wasn't just teaching Peter a lesson about Food, he was teaching Peter a lesson about Jews and Gentiles and how he was going to remove the dividing wall. Paul will later say in Ephesians and make them one people. But God never uses an illustration that is erroneous to teach a biblical truth. The one who is the truth always uses truth to teach truth. So you have a direct commandment by Jesus that all foods are clean. It is not that God has changed. However, the manner in which he deals with man sometimes changes. Third, when you come to the subject of tithing, there is nothing in the New Testament overruling it. As I hope to demonstrate in this section of the course, tithing is not part of God's ceremonial law, but of God's eternal law with full application for today is affirmed by the New Testament. So let's ask a third question. Was the Old Testament tithe 10%, 13%, or 23%? 10, 13, or 23? In the latter half of the 20th century, for the first time in church history, some tried to say giving a tenth of your income does not apply to the church, but only to God's people living in the Old Testament. Again, uh, the guy who really... I made it popular, it was a man who was a pastor, shouldn't have been a pastor, wasn't qualified to be a pastor, um, but the Schofield Study Bible was a study Bible that had a lot of good notes in it, and uh, the people read the notes like they were almost as inspired as the text, and Schofield came up with some really unusual positions on a number of things, and one was tithing. And he popularized the idea that the tithe was simply under the law, not applicable for today. When you read the church fathers, the Protestant reformers, any of the people who lived closest to the apostles and after, you can't find a commentary written before 1900 that says tithing has no application for today. Were God's people dumb for 1900 years and all of a sudden some folks got enlightened and they saw something that no one else saw in 1900 years? I don't think so. In fact, some even say that Old Testament saints did not give 10%. But they, they gave 13%, and some possibly would say even as much as 23%. They discouraged God's people from tithing by pointing out that there was not one tithe, but they say three, something they say would be impossible for us to do today. So they'll say, oh, you want to give a tithe? Then give 23%. First, they argue that Malachi chapter 3 represents the first of three tithes what some call the primary tithe given for the Levites in Jerusalem. Let me read Malachi, most of you know it. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, 
so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Second, they say another tithe was given for those Levites who lived outside of Jerusalem. And they would quote this text from Deuteronomy 14. Follow along. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name, which in this case was the tabernacle, later would be the temple, is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, or whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Also, you shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. Now, they speak first of the primary tithe. They use Malachi as an example. And they would quote also point one there, number one under small letter B. God has clearly specified in Numbers 18.21 that to the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. So the book of Deuteronomy, as the title suggests, Deuteronomos, Deutero, second, namos, the Greek word for law. So our five books in our English Bible have Greek names. Unlike in the Jewish Bible, they use all Hebrew names. Um, but the Septuagint, which was written about 200 years before Christ, gave Greek titles to the Old Testament books, the first five books. Uh, and that's, and none of the titles, by the way, are inspired. It's not like... Um, the gospel according to Mark. No, it's just the first verse. The titles are added like chapter and verse divisions and chapters and to help us find our way around the Bible. Oh, yeah, I'm looking for the scroll. Oh, there's the Isaiah scroll. It says Isaiah on the outside or whatever. So by the time they wrote the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they gave Greek names. But it's not a bad name because it means second law. In other words, this is the second time. It's at the end of Moses' life where he is recounting just before he dies, just before God kills him up there on top of Mount Nebo, takes his life. I don't say kill him. He just allows him to expire. And um, before he dies, he recounts the whole law. So um, the book of Deuteronomy, as the title suggests, was given by Moses as the people were preparing to go into the promised land 30-plus years after Numbers. Now, we can debate exactly when Numbers was written. It wasn't right after they crossed the Red Sea. But while they are in the wilderness, early on, they begin to write a number of... Moses begins to write different books. Deuteronomy is written towards the end of that time of wandering in the wilderness. 30-plus years after Numbers, adding a new feature to the legislation about the tithe. He's not changing what a tithe is, but he's adding a new feature to it in the second law. The Israelites were to take part of their tithe to the central sanctuary and eat it there as a common meal before the Lord. So remember, in the early days, 
they had a tabernacle. The tabernacle was like a tent. The temple was later um, fashioned after the pattern that God had given in the tabernacle. It's a little confusing sometimes because in a few places, the tabernacle is called the temple of God. But usually when we refer to the tabernacle, we're referring to that portable tent that the Jews had for, se for centuries. And then later, under Solomon, when they built the more concrete um, building, we call that the temple. So they were to go to the central sanctuary, the place where God designated his name to dwell. There came a time when God said, okay, now here's the place I want my name to dwell. It's not going to be in this little tent thing anymore. It's going to be in the temple. And so when Solomon built the temple, the glory of the Lord filled the place, if you remember. So they ate this common meal before the Lord. This clearly is not an additional tithe, 10% of the 90%. Number one, it would be impossible for any family to consume that much food at one meal, I think. Maybe you could do it. I know I couldn't. I went to this hamburger place once. They said if you could eat this hamburger, it would be for free. <laughs> I tried, but I couldn't. This meal was designed to teach them to fear the Lord because as they ate this meal, not only would the Levite be provided for, but they would be acknowledging that their food came from God something we don't always do, do we? Always, you know, my grandkids, we go into a restaurant or whatever, and I say, now, hogs and dogs don't, but we do. So let's bow our heads. I don't care where we're at. I don't care what people think. Um, we acknowledge, we fear God that everything we have comes from His hands. This yearly celebration that evidently coincided with first fruits in the spring based on those passages, dismiss the false Canaanite fertility gods. Oh, the, the pagans in the land said the god of rain and the god of sun and Baal and all these different gods they had. They gave us what we have. And the Jew defied that when they ate this, a portion of the tithe before God in around the temple or in around the sanctuary. The exception is if you couldn't do that, then you translated it into coinage and it was delivered to the Levite. We often think of fearing God just in terms of reverential awe, and that is certainly part of it, but it also includes acknowledging that He is the source of blessing. Clearly, this is not a second tithe, but a different way in which the tithe was expressed at harvest time in the March-April time frame when the first harvest came in. It was expressed at harvest time as a reminder to all of God's goodness. For this reason, if the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses, they could translate their crops into cash and bring it that way. Third, still another tithe given every third year to provide for the Levite, the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. Deuteronomy 14 again specifies this. At the, very, at the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. Every third year. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you. Now, remember, you had Levites who worked at the temple, as later is established, but God had Levites all across where the 12 tribes would, would camp and the land that he apportioned to them. 
So God, in his wisdom, gave Levites to every tribe who in turn taught the law and did all these different things. The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you. Tribal Levite didn't get any land. And the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Now, if you read Deuteronomy 14 along with Nehemiah 10, let me read Nehemiah 10, 37. I have it printed. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil to the priests of the chambers of the house of our God and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the royal towns. The priests, the son of Aaron, their descendants of Aaron, uh, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chamber of our storehouse. So if you read Deuteronomy 14 with Nehemiah 10, you will discover that the Bible never explicitly says that you first gave one-tenth to the Levites in Jerusalem, and then a second-tenth to the rest of the Levites outside of Jerusalem. Very clearly, it is the same tenth. However, in Deuteronomy 14, God specified both groups so that neither group of Levites would be overlooked. So you had Levites in Jerusalem, you had Levites who were out in the community. For this reason, during the third year, and here's how it worked out, the tithe is not to the place where God would establish His name, Deuteronomy 14.23, but it was deposited in your town where you live. Some find in this tithe given every three years to be distributed among the Levite, the alien, the widow, and the orphan, an additional 3% for a total of 23% given to the Lord. There is nothing in any of these verses that even hints that the third tithe is an additional tithe. No one saw that for 1,900 years. No one. None of the rabbinical sources of ancient days, not in the Mishnah, the Talmud. No one saw this until Schofield came along. And Schofield was really mixed up in a lot of areas. You'll meet him in heaven, but he was mixed up in a lot of areas. One, he violated the biblical principle. He was divorced and remarried, and he hid it until it came out in a courtroom. He should not have been a pastor, but he hid it. And he compromised God's truth. There's nothing in these verses that hints that there's a third tithe. All we find in these verses is how the tithe was to be distributed directly in the third year, but not an additional third tithe. God knew that the Levites out in the towns did not need the full tithe every year to carry on his work. So on the third year, they were to make provision also for the alien and the poor. In addition, one of the most compelling arguments that the tithe was simply 10% is found in the instruction that God gave to the Levites in Numbers 10, 26. Let me read that. Moreover, you shall speak to the Levites and say to them, when you, make from the, when you take from the sons of Israel the tithe which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you pr shall present an offering from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. So they received the tithe, and it's not like, oh, this is now mine. No, it was used to carry on the work of the Lord, but they gave what they received personally, what God put in their hand, they gave a tenth of the tenth. An almost universal principle found throughout the Bible is that leaders lead by example. 
So if it was 13 or 23%, why didn't they give 13 or 23%? Because it wasn't 13 or 23%. God specified a tithe of the tithe. God knows the theme of Hosea. As the leaders go, so go the people. Throughout the Bible, those who lead are never expected to give less than those whom they lead. When I hire someone on my staff or a pastor and they don't tithe, they're not even in the application process. Why would I want to hire a pastor who's disobedient to God's revealed truth? I wouldn't want to do it. God's people for over 1,900 years have believed that tithing or the giving of 10% of our incomes was fully applicable for today. I'm unable to find a single Bible commentary written before 1920 that will teach otherwise. And I have, between my library here and at home, over 5,000 books in my library. I've got so many in the attic, it drives my wife crazy. I'm telling you, you won't find it because it's a new teaching. Does it make any difference if the Old Testament tithe was more than 10%? Let's just ask that question. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe it's 13 or 20, 23%. Doesn't make any difference. Even if one gives the benefit of the doubt to those who calculate the tithe at 13 or 23%, the simple truth of the matter is that the tenth was taught before the law and was before the law was given, and then again by Christ in the New Testament. I'm going to finish and I'll pray tonight. And those of you who had prayer requests, I'll let you do them on your own before you go to bed. For those who say that to tithe today is to be legalistic, they must remember that tithing is not part of God's ceremonial law, but God's eternal law. And I will go through this in much more depth next week, but I'm just introducing it here. Remember that tithing was practiced 400 years before the Mosaic law, as recorded in Genesis chapter 14. So, you know, when you think about, you know, um, Abraham, he lives about 2,000 years before Christ. He lives, um, you know, and of course, 430 years after Abraham comes Moses. So you can see some time frames there. In Genesis 14, Abraham gave a tenth of all he gave, gained to Melchizedek, the priest and king. In Hebrews 7, we learn that Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Now, that may be a new word to some of us. A type is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament reality. And sometimes there's things that are directly stated as such and sometimes by way of illustration. So you see types or pictures of the Lord Jesus all the way through the Old Testament, either by a direct prophecy or by an illustration. Um, even in Genesis, Noah's Ark, Peter tells us was a type of Christ. It's one boat. Why? Because there's one God. There's three floors. Why? Because there's three in one. There's one door. Why? Because there's one way into the boat, and there's one way to the Father and the Spirit, and it's through Christ. You see Abraham up there on top of Mount Moriah offering Isaac. And Hebrews 11 tells us that's a type. That was a picture of Isaac, who's the monogene, the only, there's only two who are called the monogene, the only begotten son in the Bible. Isaac's boy, who is a miracle baby, not in the same way Jesus was, obviously, but nonetheless a miracle baby. And Jesus is a uniquely begotten son as, a, as born of a virgin. But you, he's a type, Isaac, a Jacob's ladder in the book of Genesis. Remember, Jesus described him as a type of Christ in the Gospel of John. The Passover lamb, 
That's a type. That's a picture of Christ. And Melchizedek in Genesis 14, he's a type of Christ. So you see these pictures of the Lord Jesus all the way. You're barely out of Genesis. For this Melchizedek, Hebrews 7, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was the first of all, by the translation of his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness, and he's the king of Salem, Shalom, which is king of peace. So without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So let's take our way through this. And if you want to, I've preached the book of Hebrews. I have an hour-long sermon just on these three verses. Actually, it's an hour and a half, because in those days, I preached an hour and a half every Sunday. (laughs) You you think I'm joking? It's true. (laughs) Just like the Lord Jesus Christ, Melchizedek was able to serve as both a priest and a king. Just like, Christ is he, just, like Christ represent, just like Christ, he, Melchizedek, represented peace and righteousness, as seen in the translation of his name, and as in the work of Christ's cross. Though he, Melchizedek, was a man, he's called a man in Hebrews and in Genesis, with a beginning or end, as all men do, genealogically speaking, He has no beginning or end that is recorded, and so he typifies the eternal son. His genealogy is not found in Scripture. He has one because he says that a few verses later in Hebrews 7, but it's just not given to us. So in that sense, it's like he has no beginning or end. He just shows up on the pages of Scripture. And so he's a picture of Christ. Genealogically speaking, with Aaron's descendants, we have a movie picture. But by design and respect to the biblical record, without father or mother, with Melchizedek, God gave us a snapshot. From our viewpoint, he is always a priest because we do not see his induction and we do not see him when he is too old to function as a priest. He is always a priest. And so by type, he is like Christ, who's a priest forever as well. The point is this, when Abraham gave a tenth to one who pictured Christ, he was giving to Christ. Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a type of Christ. Now, occasionally you'll meet someone who will say he was not a type of Christ. This was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. I don't agree with that. But even if you take that position, it doesn't change anything. There are some times when Jesus, if you were here in our course on angels years ago, he shows up before he's ever incarnated in human flesh in the Old Testament. He shows up as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is called God. So you have to ask, well, which member of the Trinity is the angel of the Lord if he's God? Is he Father, Son, or the Holy Spirit? You let Scripture interpret Scripture, and it's very pointedly isolated. The angel of the Lord is God the Son. That's why you never see the angel, you see an angel, but you never see the angel of the Lord ever appear after Bethlehem again. My point is, is some say that Melchizedek, that this was one of those pre-incarnate appearances of Christ, not as the angel of the Lord, but as this priest Melchizedek. I don't think so. I don't think you can build that case, though some do, and I can respect what they're trying to do. But what I do think you can say 
is what Jesus said in John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So in Abram, which was technically his name at that point, someone got mad at me one Sunday. You said you called Abram Abraham. Well, I said I'm in good company because the writer of the Hebrews referred to Abram is Abraham before God gave him the name Abraham. And Stephen, when he preached in Acts 7, referred to Abram as Abraham before he was Abraham, okay? So let's not get legalistic here. When Abram gave a tenth, whether one thinks he was giving to a pre-incarnate Christ or one who pictured Christ, in either case, he was giving to Christ some 400 years before the law. 400 years ever before Moses codified tithing, we see this act of giving. Now, we've just started to substantiate the case why tithing is part of God's moral law, and we will finish it, Lord willing, in our next session together. Let's bow our hearts in prayer this evening. Father, we thank you that even in the opening pages of Scripture that you established such an incredible principle that you are the giver of life, that you breathe into us the breath of life, that we're nothing without you. We thank you that in you we live and move and find our being, as Paul affirmed to the Athenians. And thank you not just for physical life, but for spiritual life and for the shedding of blood that you established with Adam that Abel believed as taught by his parents. And that through Messiah's shed innocent holy blood, a payment for our sin was made. We thank you that it is he that loved us first that becomes the motivation for our expressing our love and turn to you, however that may show itself. So teach us about giving. Teach us what your word says here in the days ahead. Father, we know it, it breaks your heart when we think of the kids in America who are experiencing the worst kind of child abuse and that they are totally neglected and ignored spiritually. So we just thank you that we are even privileged to care for these kids. Thank you for these who tirelessly this whole year on Wednesday nights have ministered to them while we're in here and we're enjoying and we're dialoguing, we're thinking, and they leave there exhausted. But thank you for the energy that they've expelled for the kingdom of God. Now be with us this week. Help us to be sensitive to the people that are around us. Give us opportunities to reach out and to love people and invite people to the work of Christ. We ask it in his holy name. Amen.